Well, we continue our study this evening, coming to the penultimate chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I hope it's been a, a, an edifying and encouraging study of not just our doctrinal standards, but the teaching of the Bible. That's really what the Confession of Faith is. It's a summary of what the Bible teaches on all the most important things. What is our duty towards God and what he has done for us. And so in our last, second to last chapter, we have uh, of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead, chapter 32 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so we're going to answer uh, several questions. It's actually a pretty short section. I've divided these questions up into pretty small chunks, uh, but we're going to consider first what happens to the bodies and souls of men generally after death, then We'll consider more particularly what happens to the souls of the righteous after death and what happens to the souls of the wicked after death. Fourthly, are there other places besides uh, the two that we generally think of, heaven and hell? Are there other places that souls may go after they die? Some say yes, some say no. We'll find out. What happens to those alive at the last day? It's very possible that Jesus could return this very moment, and we may not die. What will happen to those alive when Jesus comes on the last day? What will happen to all the dead in the last day? And finally, what will happen to the bodies of the just and the unjust at the time of the resurrection? So all this dealing with the specific doctrine of death and resurrection, but looking at it in some detail. So first question, what happens to the bodies and souls of men generally, sort of irregardless, that's not a word, but regardless of their, uh, of their righteousness or unrighteousness? Men generally, our confession of faith says, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. And so from the very outset, what we find in this section of our confession of faith is the unavoidable, inevitable certainty of death. All men, if Jesus does not return before you die, you will die. Either you will die or Jesus will return before you die. But if Jesus doesn't return before you die, you will de- by, before you die, you will die. God has appointed death to all men. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then comes judgment. And in fact, man knows he will die. I hope you all realize, I mean, this is not just doctrine, pie in the sky, doctrine to consider. Every single one of you, if Jesus doesn't return first, will die. And the question is, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to your body? What's going to happen to your soul when you die? Job says, I know that you will bring me to death. And the psalmist says, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? And so Job and the psalmist know what you need to know, which is that all men, generally and individually, you included, will die 
and there's absolutely nothing you can do to prevent it. Uh, You can stay on the strictest diet and exercise regime known to man, avoid all the fat and all the protein and have, a, as one of my doctors once said, a a whole food plant-based diet. You will still die. Man cannot deliver himself from death. Our confession tells us that after we die, man's body returns to the dust. We might ask, well, why does man's body return to the dust? Well, it's because we are made from dust. In fact, we die uh, because of sin. Romans 5.12 says, because sin came into the world through one man. That's referring to Adam and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so the reason we die, the reason you will die, is because you are a sinner, born in sin, with a sin nature. Well, Paul alludes to God's curse against Adam. He says to Adam, this is God speaking, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So why does God say that you will die and your body will return to dust? It is because you are cursed because of Adam's sin, and because of your sin. That's why you will die. That is why you will return to dust. And this is true for you and all men. Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Underlining the word all there. It doesn't matter. So far as it concerns death and dying, whether you are the most righteous person possible, or the worst person in the world. Because your good works cannot deliver you from death. No, the righteous and the unrighteous all return to dust. So that's the fate of our body. When you die, your body will be buried, and it will decompose, and it will disintegrate, and it will turn after some time into dust. But what about your soul? Does our soul suffer the same fate? Well, some people believe that there really is nothing called the soul. We are just our bodily organisms, and when our body dies, so does our existence end. That would be atheists and those sort. Others think that the soul continues to exist after bodily death, but lies in sort of an unconscious slumber, uh, what's commonly called soul sleep. Uh, This would be advocated in modern times by Jehovah's Witnesses uh, and Seventh-day Adventists. And I'll be referring to these texts frequently throughout tonight, but just from a surface level, say why that's not the case. We just think about what we know about the Bible. One of the clearest scriptures we have concerns the rich man and Lazarus and the thief on the cross. And both of these tell us very clearly what happens when we die. The rich man dies and is buried. And he immediately enters into his suffering and fiery anguish. Lazarus dies and he immediately enters into his comfort. And so from this, we have good reason to understand that 
we don't have some intermediary state where we are asleep, as some people would argue. Now, the Scripture does, you're thinking, aren't there verses in the Bible that talk about people being asleep with regards to death? Uh, I think about the, uh, uh, the little girl who died uh, in uh, Mark. Uh, there are other examples where sleep is, uh, is used in the Scripture to refer to something like death. In fact, it is referring to death, but it's a euphemism. Oftentimes, the righteous and the unrighteous are described as being asleep when, in fact, they are dead. And why does the Scripture say that? Well, because uh, there is a sense in which death is similar to sleep, especially for the righteous, namely that their bodies are now at complete and final peace. And so it's used as a euphemism, not to say that they're not really dead. They are really dead. But the word sleep is used there uh, to describe their bodies being at rest. You can look up these yourself. I won't read them, but 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Acts 7, 60, and 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14 all describe similar situations of sleep being used as a euphemism for death. Now, the question of what happens to our bodies is pretty straightforward. We see that from our own experience, but since we can't see the soul, we might wonder what happens to our soul after death. In fact, uh, Solomon himself asks this question In Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? Question mark. And we find his answer actually a few chapters later in chapter 12. He he gives his conclusion. The dust returns to the earth as it was, referring to the body. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. And so that's Solomon's answer to this question of what happens to your spirit, your soul, after your body dies, he says it goes back to God who gave it. Well, Jesus affirms this conclusion when he teaches concerning who we should fear and not fear. He says that man cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so here we see that the soul, at least so far as it concerns man's ability to kill it, is not killable. Or as our confession says, it is an immortal subsistence. That is what it is substantially in its its core. Obviously, we have all sorts of qualities that we might consider, but at its core, what a soul is, is immortal subsistence. Not eternal. It's not pre-existing and eternal like God is. God created it. It has a point in the beginning where God has created each individual soul for each body that he places it in, and he breathes life into a creation. Uh, But so far as it concerns going forward, it is immortal. It's not immortal because it's eternally existent or inherently indestructible, but because God has created and decreed that from the point in time in which it was created, it should exist and last forever. And so practically, what does this mean? It means that every human being is created in the image of God, body and soul, and while the body, because of the curse for sin, must die, and certainly does die, the soul endures eternally. 
practically what that means is that as you interact with people, realize that they're not just sacks of flesh and blood. Every individual you interact with has an eternal soul, an immortal soul, and that immortal soul is going to go somewhere. And so as we preface sort of these considerations of the eternal state and the resurrection and what happens to souls after they die, as we look at that, remember each and every person, in the, everyone in this room, each and every person in your family, your friends, everywhere in your coworkers and your, your, your workplaces, immortal, eternal souls. Well, we're told this soul returns to God Immediately, And the important word here for our context is the word immediately. It immediately returns to God who gave them. And the reason why that's the important word is because, as I've often said, the, the sort of polemical context of this document is very much focused on the Roman Catholic teachings uh, in contrast to the Reformed doctrines. And the Church of Rome does not teach that the souls of men go immediately back to God. They teach that there is an intermediary state. Uh, You've probably heard of the word purgatory. And what is purgatory? Well, it's sort of in the name itself. It's a place where the, the sin of sinners can be purged so that they can be prepared to go to heaven. There's all sorts of things wrong with the doctrine of purgatory, not the least of which is that it's found nowhere, either the word or the idea in Scripture. They're going to have a few texts we'll deal with in a minute that they will try to say, teach this doctrine. Uh, but there is no place in Scripture where you'll find the word purgatory, and you will not find the idea there. Conveniently, the, you know, the, the real, all these things are connected, right? Uh, purgatory doesn't come into existence really, till pretty late in church history as an idea. It's absent in the first six or seven centuries uh, of church history, uh, where it starts to appear at that point. But it's really not even codified as doctrine for the, for the Roman Catholic Church until as late as the, the 1500s, 1400s at the earliest. I mean, this is a pretty novel doctrine. And it's no coincidence that it almost directly precedes uh, the Reformation. Uh, The big thing about purgatory is how does one get out of purgatory? Well, the way you get out of purgatory is through the use of the sacraments and specifically the purchasing of indulgences. That's how you get out. You want to go straight to heaven? You don't want to suffer bodily through fire? Well, Make sure you make right use of the sacraments. Make sure you get your papal indulgences. Make sure you have uh, people interceding uh, for the dead and through priestly intercession, all these different ways you can get out of purgatory and at least lessen your time there. All right, so 1563 Council of Trent is sort of the official beginning of this being the doctrine of the church. There's some, de- uh, some, some existence of it before that, uh, the Council of Florence in 1439. Uh, but really, it's right before the Reformation that this sort of becomes one of the main impetuses for the Reformation is this issue of purgatory and papal indulgences. So where, where would the Roman Catholics say there's biblical basis for the intermediary state, where, whether purgatory? The other one you probably haven't heard of as much is limbo. 
specifically the limbo of the patriarchs. There's also less officially a limbo for uh, infants dying in infancy without baptism, uh, places that aren't quite heaven, but they're not quite as bad as purgatory. Uh, again, no place in the Bible for either of those things, uh, but that doesn't stop the Roman Catholic Church from asserting them. Well, two main textual bases for purgatory come from Matthew 12 and 1 Corinthians 3. Matthew 12, 32, uh, Jesus is sort of talking about the unpardonable, the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. He says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And from this Roman Catholic Church, they're, they're inferring, well, if the sins aren't going to be forgiven in the age to come, there must be some sin. If that, if that particular sin can't be forgiven in the age to come, maybe there must be some other sins that can be forgiven in the age to come, which they understand to be death. And so where, where do you get the forgiveness for those sins? If it's not in this life, if it's in the age to come, maybe there's a place called purgatory uh, that we can infer from Matthew twelve thirty two. Again, it's, a, it's an inference, and we don't reject all inferences. There are some places where we make good and necessary inferences from Scripture. Uh, you know, God is the God of the living, not the dead. Therefore, the resurrection is a true doctrine. That's a good and necessary inference. Uh, Jesus himself makes that one. This inference, though, is not necessary, and it's not good. The second textual basis, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul here is uh, talking about uh, works being burnt up in fire. And again, there's no explicit reference or teaching here uh, about purgatory, but what the Roman Catholics do, again, they, they infer uh, from this text that purgatory is true. Uh, the only problem with that is that Paul is not describing what even Roman Catholics say purgatory is. Paul is talking about works being judged. The Roman Catholic Church is talking in purgatory about people and sin being judged. Paul is talking about works in general, both good and bad. Rome is talking specifically about sin, what we call evil works. And so they're not even really talking about the same thing. The, the, the duration and the object of purgatory are different. The object, I just described that, what's the duration difference? Well, purgatory for Roman Catholics is a duration of time. It might be 10,000 years or a million years, who knows, uh, but it's a period of time. But Paul's talking about the day, definite, particular. And so these are not the same thing. Uh, there's no basis in Paul's writings or in the Gospels for purgatory. And again, I made reference to this before, but Jesus told the thief on the cross that this day he would be with him in paradise. He didn't say, well, after you spend 10 or 20 or 100,000 years in purgatory, then you'll be with me in paradise. He said, this day you will be with me in paradise. So there's, no, there's no basis. The thief on the cross, as well as the rich man in Lazarus, uh, plainly teach us that souls of believers and unbelievers immediately return to God. And then there's a distinction from there that we'll look at. Scripture, or uh, Robert Shaw says, Scripture speaks only of a heaven and only of a hell, into one of which all departed souls have entered. So what happens now, that's generally, but what happens specifically between the righteous and the unrighteous 
says the souls of the righteous being made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens when they behold the the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And so thus far, we've considered the the death of the body that returns to dust, and the the, the, the soul does not die, it returns to God, uh, whether you're righteous or unrighteous. The question then is, is there any distinction? Does it make a difference to be righteous or unrighteous? Uh, to, to have believed in Christ and to walk and followed after him or to have lived a, a reckless, godly, godless life? Does it make a difference if we all just die and all of our bodies become dust and all of our souls return to God regardless? Well, yes, it does make a difference because what happens after our souls return to God matters. Each personal soul will return to the Lord, but Scripture plainly teaches that the destinies of all men are not the same The Confession of Faith, summarizing the teaching of the Bible, distinguishes between the souls of the righteous and the souls of the unrighteous. And so first we have the souls of the righteous. First we're told that they're made perfect in holiness. Uh, Hebrews talks about uh, Christians uh, worshiping in in public, and it talks about how we ascend to heavenly Mount Zion in our public worship. If you've not thought about it, that's pretty cool. You're not just worshiping in a pew, but you're ascending spiritually to heavenly Zion. And who are you worshiping with when you worship in heavenly Zion? Well, it's the festal angels and the saints, the spirits of the saints who are described as being made righteous, the righteous made perfect. That's what the author to Hebrews says. So that the, the righteous made perfect, that's the souls of believers who have died and gone to heaven even now, before the, the, the bodily resurrection has occurred, there are saints, righteous, made perfect in heaven, uh, and we worship with them uh, when we gather together along with the festal angels. And so the souls of believers upon death, we're inferring from this text, uh, are made perfectly holy, uh, and we would say that by their glorification. Now the question we want to ask here is, why does that matter? Why does it matter that the souls of believers are made perfect in righteousness at the death of their bodies. Well, it has to do with what comes next. These saints are received, we're told, into the highest heaven, and behold the face of God in light and in glory. Now, one is necessary for the next. If the souls of believers are not made perfect, they are not suited to behold the face of God in light and glory. What we need is not just to be declared righteous on this earth, to be made more and more righteous through sanctification, uh, declared righteous through justification. We need both justification and sanctification, but what we need finally, ultimately, is to be made perfect through glorification so that we would be suitable to dwell with God and to behold him face to face. Paul says to the saints in Corinth that on earth they see the Lord as in a mere dimly, And yet a day is coming when they will see him face to face. Now we know in part, but in the future we will know him fully. Now, incidentally, this is why Paul says to die and to be with Christ is far better. It's not, as Roman Catholics might argue, because he's in a hurry to get into purgatory and to get it over with. No, Paul says it's better to be with Christ because he wants to be free from sin and made perfect through glorification so he'd be suited to be in heaven with the Lord. And so this is the ultimate and end goal of salvation. Justification, sanctification lead to glorification, and glorification itself even is but a means 
by which we would be well suited to be in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ and to see the face of God. And so we ask ourselves, why did Jesus descend from heaven and die on the cross? It was so that he might ascend to heaven in glory. And this is why Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What's the Christian life and faith all about? Not ultimately about justification or sanctification or even glorification. What does Jesus say? Eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing the Son. The ultimate hope we have, the end goal to which we're trying to get, is to behold the face of God. And so what happens to the souls of the righteous? They immediately go to be with Jesus, and there they behold the face of God. And while they're doing that, they are waiting for the redemption of their bodies. You see, God's plan does not end with disembodied souls worshiping him in heaven. We know that Jesus was raised bodily. In his post-resurrection appearances, uh, he eats, he's touched, he has a physical, real body. Even actually, interestingly, he has the wounds from the crucifixion still. So this is a bodily resurrection that we're hoping for. Paul says Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things unto himself. He will descend from heaven a second time. And on the day the uh, the dead in Christ will rise, um, and and on that day the dead in Christ will rise. And so this doctrine, this truth, this reality is called the beatific vision. Uh, It culminates with us beholding the face of, of God not as merely disembodied souls, but as soul-body creatures made after the image of God. Well, pressing on a bit fast, uh, we have uh, these last paragraphs. We'll go a little quicker. What happens to the souls of the wicked? Uh, we've considered the righteous. What about the wicked? Uh, we say that the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. And so what about the souls of the wicked? They too immediately return to God, but then they are immediately cast into hell. And throughout history and even today, many people have denied uh, the existence of hell. Quite famously, uh, several years ago when I was a younger Christian, uh, you had Rob Bell saying, love wins, right? A big reason people deny the existence of hell uh, is because they think, well, God's just too loving of a God uh, to send people to hell which is simply just not true because the person who speaks about hell the most in the Bible is not Paul, it's not Peter, it's Jesus. Jesus talks a great deal about hell. Well, others acknowledge hell exists, but they'll deny that any man, woman, or child should suffer there. And still others acknowledge the existence of hell and that some will suffer, but they say such suffering is either temporary or it's postponed until the bodily resurrection. But again, the Bible plainly teaches a place exists where the wicked are eternally punished. As I mentioned before, Jesus himself talks a lot about hell. He describes it as a place of undying worm, of unquenchable fire. And you ever think about why the worm does not die and why the fire is not quenched in hell? It's because the fuel and the food for the fire and the worm is unending. 
This is a description, an illustration of eternal suffering in hell. Others argue that hell is for the devils and his angels, not for men. And there's some truth to that. Jesus does say that the eternal fire was prepared for them. And yet, in that same section of Scripture, it doesn't stop Jesus from saying that he's going to cast sinners into that fire. Just because it was originally prepared for the devil and angels doesn't mean that there won't be men, women, and children who did not repent and believe who will be cast in there forever. Well, those who argue hell is a place that is a temporary suffering, sinners perhaps go there very briefly only to be destroyed almost immediately. Uh, They should mark Peter's warning to the Thessalonians where he describes the fate of the ungodly as one of eternal destruction. And interestingly, as we've considered the fate of the righteous souls who go to dwell and behold the face of God forever in glory, Peter there says that these ungodly are away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so this is really the the, the thing that makes hell horrible and heaven so great is not because we'll have harps and lyres and comfortable clouds in heaven and there'll be lots of fire in hell, though that's true as it goes. What really makes the great distinction between heaven and hell has to do with the comfortable presence and our ability to behold God himself face to face. That's what really matters in the Christian life. Why do you want to go to heaven? Why do you not want to go to hell? Not just to avoid suffering, but to be able to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in his presence, dwelling with God. Well, those who think such suffering is simply postponed until judgment should note the experience of the rich man. I've referred to him before, but again, he died and was buried and immediately entered into suffering and anguish and flames. And so great was his suffering that he begged, what what did he beg for? He begged that Abraham would command Lazarus to give him a bit of water, or at least to go warn his family about the future suffering. And so there was no postponing. Some say, well, Jesus has to come again, and then people will be cast into hell. No, people are suffering. The rich man is suffering now. Unbelievers throughout the ages spiritually are suffering now. And when the resurrection happens, their suffering will be compounded because of the bodily resurrection. They'll be raised bodily too. And they will suffer more for it. And yet our blessedness in heaven will be increased by the bodily resurrection. Are there other places to which a soul may go besides these two places, namely heaven and hell, for souls separated from their bodies? The scripture acknowledgeth none. It doesn't get any simpler than that. You have to appreciate the plain language of the, the, the Westminster divines. No, there's not. There is no purgatory. There is no limbo for the patriarchs, no limbo for infants. There is only heaven. There is only hell. Each of them full with immortal souls will someday be raised bodily, either to blessedness or to harm. What will happen to those alive at the last day? Kind of an interesting question, right? If Jesus does return and you're still alive... You just like miss out on the resurrection? You should have died a little earlier? No. On the last day, such as are found alive shall not die. Well, that's good news. But they will be changed still. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, key chapter for this doctrine, just go read 1 Corinthians 15. It pretty much will tell you most of what you need to know. Great chapter on the resurrection. But he says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. He's using that word sleep euphemistically. Uh, euphemistically. But we shall all be changed. And the question we want to answer here, the great mystery, right? How are we going to be changed? Well, we'll be changed by the resurrection and redemption and glorification of our bodies. But beyond that, it's kind of hard to say. What will happen to all the dead at the last day? And all the dead shall be raised up with self-same bodies and none other, although with different qualities which shall be united again to their souls forever. And so the bodies that you're going to have are not new bodies, different from what you had before substantially. They're not other people's bodies. That would be reincarnation. We don't believe that. They are the same bodies, the self-same bodies in which your soul dwelled before. Buried, dead, turned to dust. But God's going to recreate it anew, although with different qualities. What does that mean? What are the different qualities that our new bodies will have? Well, Paul says the corruptible must put on incorruption and the mortal must put on immortality. And so your, your body of the resurrection will be substantially the same as your original body, but it's got different qualities. It's not fully explained what it is, but Paul will go on to say, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. So he's juxtaposing sort of the normal mortal body and this new resurrection body, which then we, we understand is imperishable. It does not die. It's glorious. It's powerful. It's spiritual. And what does all that mean? Well, still don't know. Kind of a mystery. But we know what it's for because he goes on to describe that the, this body will be heavenly and it will be suitable for those who must inherit the kingdom of God. Whatever change may take place in these resurrected bodies, the primary goal of those changes is that you'd be well-suited to inherit the kingdom of God, to dwell with God face to face, and to enjoy his presence. So we don't know. Walking through walls, flying, I don't know. What, do you, will you need to eat or not eat? I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't answer those questions. The Bible tells us that the, the change in our bodies is one that makes us suitable for eternal life with God in heaven. Finally, what will happen to the bodies of the just and the unjust at the time of the resurrection? The bodies of the just and the unjust shall be, sorry, the bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and made comfortable or conformable to his own glorious body. And so there's a number of texts we could look at here, John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are, may, are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out, those who have gone, done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Acts twenty four fifteen. Paul on the trial before Felix, he says this, having a hope in God, which these men accept, themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before this day. See, there's going to be a bodily resurrection 
the unjust to dishonor, the just to honor. And this is a core tenet of the Christian faith. It is the reason Paul is on trial, the bodily resurrection of the dead. It's for this reason Paul says, if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. If we do not believe that Christ is risen from the dead and that we will be raised in him, we of all men should be pitied. I can think of a million different things to do with life if there is no eternal life and no bodily resurrection. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that's it. And you turn to dust. Or how much then should the bodily resurrection give us hope for the future and encouragement for today to live godly lives, to follow Christ, to pursue that hope of resurrection, right? Working out our faith and fear and trembling. This should give us great encouragement for the day to come. Lesson review. What happens to the bodies and souls of men after death? Well, the bodies go to dust, souls go to God. What happens to the bodies, the souls of the righteous after death? Well, they're glorified in heaven. What happens to the souls of the wicked after death? They are cast into hell. Are there other places a soul can go? No. What will happen to those alive at the last day? They'll be changed. And what that looks like, we don't know all the details, but it's going to be pretty great. What will happen to all the dead at the last day? They will be raised. And what will happen to the bodies of the just and the unjust at the time of the resurrection? Two directions. Resurrection to dishonor. Resurrection to honor. And the question is, what makes the difference? Righteous, unrighteous. How are you righteous? By believing in Christ. And so you want to die well. If you're preparing to die well, how do, you, how do you prepare to die well? Be sure that you're trusting in Jesus. It's very simple. Eternal souls, immortal souls, stand in this room, in your families, in your places of work. Will they be raised to dishonor or to honor? That's a question you ought to ask yourself as you interact with people in the week to come. Faith comes by hearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ's resurrection and ours, our blessed hope. Help us to live in light of these truths. Give us hope for the future. Give us comfort for today. How we long to spend eternity face to face with you and with the Lord Jesus Christ I pray for your saints that you would help them to have always on their mind this great hope of the beatific vision and of the bodily resurrection. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.